Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Still Positive. I'm so happy that you're here, as always. My name is Dana Marie and I am your host. I am feeling stuffy. I'm always feeling stuffy, but I, for some reason, feel like I'm hungover, but I didn't even drink last night, so I'm just feeling crappy. Does that make sense? Is that always my life? Not always, but today especially. And a lot of people would just say, drink a lot of water, but that's my MO every day. So, I don't know, TBD. I wish that I at least had the fun part of drinking to then have this feeling after. Like, I just have the side effect of drinking without the fun. (laughs) Is that a metaphor for my life? It shouldn't be, but... Maybe it is. No fun, just pain. No, I'm just kidding. That's not actually my life. But I am feeling stuffy, so I apologize for my uh, stuffiness, even though it's out of my control. Anyway, today I'm talking to Maddie. Maddie is living with CMT, or Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease. We'll get into the name in a little bit and how it feels wrong for the disease that it is, but we'll get into that. She is going to school for her PhD in theology, and she has a lot of great ideas on connecting theology and disability or chronic illness and the people that live with both of those in their lives. She is such a bright light, and it was just really great to hear her experience and also relate to that within myself and hopefully within yourself. So take a listen and let's get into it. Here's Living with CMT with Maddie. I'm Dana Murray, and this is Still Positive. Let's be real, people love to gloss over chronic conditions or disabilities with a fleeting comment like, just be positive, or a fleeting insult like, kale will cure you, as if your life was that easy of a fix. This is a podcast for when you face a different reality, knowing that positivity isn't a magic wand that's going to cure everything, but a flashlight in the dark that we may or may not have batteries to. Living with a chronic illness or disability makes you feel different, and your difference could be noticeable to others or not, but either can sometimes make you feel invisible. I'm here to tell you that your experience is valid, and shared by others in the dark. Positivity is not the missing puzzle piece that's going to solve your life's puzzle, but it can be a beautiful tool that can help you grow, and sharing those experiences can make us grow together. So Maddie, tell me a little bit about your first diagnosis with CMT, and also why they call it CMT in general, because it's I didn't understand why it was called tooth like marie tooth what is the first word though that's a great uh question because it's such a weird name and a lot of people in the cmt community are so used to people say like we'll say oh we have i have chakra marie tooth disease and they're like what's wrong with your teeth yeah like that's a pretty <laughs> like that's a pretty standard joke um in the cmt world so the charco marie and tooth were all um are all last names of the French researchers who discovered the disease. So that's why it has the name that it has. 
still a very odd name. Maybe we could come up with something catchier, like a cute nickname or something. But yeah, yeah CMT also gets confused with country music television. I did see that. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Like, yeah. I know. I know. Um, okay. So yeah, CMT, short cremary tooth disease is a hereditary neuropathy uh, that causes gradual nerve degeneration and uh, muscle loss in the feet, legs, arms, and hands. The progression is different for everyone and it also depends on what type you have. So I have type 1A, which is the most common type. And people, I know people in 1A who use wheelchairs. I know people in 1A who don't even get diagnosed till they're 65 because they haven't had any symptoms. So it, the, it varies widely. Mm. Um, I was diagnosed officially in high school, but my parents noticed that something was off when I was about five. And they noticed that I had some pretty severe scoliosis, like when I was wearing a bathing suit. So we got that checked out. And then you know what you, the pediatrician's office when they hit your knees with the little rubber thing mm-hmm. <laughs> to check your reflexes. So I never had those reflexes. And that was the first sign that there was something going on. So I think in about fifth or sixth grade, I had an awesome pediatrician and she knew what CMT was. And she said, you know, I think this is what it is. Uh, you can get genetic testing to confirm. And I didn't realize how lucky I was to have that experience because a lot of other people with CMT had a hard time getting a diagnosis because it's a relatively rare disease and um, not many doctors see it very often. So it's a little bit more difficult to diagnose. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky though, in that I, we found it pretty early, got an informal diagnosis that was later confirmed in high school. And the other interesting thing about my experience, which is I think like 30% of people um, is that mine was a random mutation. So no one else in my family has CMT. It was a completely new thing for my parents. And um, that brought with it a lot of interesting challenges and conversations and and the whole thing. But um, most people I know with CMT have it in their family. So like their parents have or the grandparents have it. And so they kind of know what the deal is. They know what to expect. But um, yeah, mine was a random mutation. So so finding out about it was a little bit shocking and we kind of had to learn as we went. Yeah. And learn together too, because at least if the family had it, then they would have, like you said, a better understanding of what it even was. Wow. Exactly. Well, at least you get to like do research together, I guess. But that is so scary because you're so young at that point. What research are you really doing? It's really just yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And to be honest, I didn't want anything to do with learning about it until mm. I was even in my 20s. Like I remember in grade school and high school when they would try to talk to me about it or when we would go to the doctor's office and they would try to engage me around, you know, surgeries I'd have to have in the future or prognosis, I would just not want to hear it Yeah, because I was like, there's no point. Like I'm too young. I just, it's going to, ha- whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I kind of just pushed it out. So I didn't even take part in any of the learning. I intentionally did not learn about it until I was older because I kind of didn't want to deal with it for better or for worse. So it was just a coping skill. Yeah. And thanks for bringing that up because I feel like 
a lot of people are in that space and maybe feeling a bit guilty about, you know, not researching and not knowing every single detail about it. But sometimes, like you said, it's a coping thing. Like you deal with this. Yeah. Tell me what I got to do. And like, yep. you let me know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Need to know only like, yeah. tell me what I have to do to get through this year. And I'm going to do that. And it's going to be fine. Yeah, exactly. Oh, good. Well, I mean, and I mean, like you had like a great support system with your family and like doctors that uh, understood what you were going through. So that was way easier for you to do. And like, you know, thankfully they had um, good resources for that because it's just, it's so overwhelming, like the amount of research that you could do. And then also it's like, if the benefit is really just to learn more about it and if it's not going to help you, then why, you know, like why, if you're going to just like sit in your head and reel around about it and like all the things yeah. you've read. It's like, yeah, exactly. Is helping. Is that helping you? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I've started asking myself the question, like, what will this contribute? Mm. What will doing this research contribute? How will this help me? And sometimes the answer is it's not going to contribute anything, but growing anxiety, Yes. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. and if that's the only thing, but then I don't need I'm right just now. not going to do it. Yeah. I don't need it right now. Right. If I can come into that space of like doing research or finding out more and it's going to help me prepare for something in the future um, or help me understand what my body is going through better. Sure. Like that's wonderful, but I have pretty tight boundaries around reading into yeah, research about the prognosis and stuff like that, because yeah. trying to, be present to the present. Yes. No, totally. I appreciate that. So CMT has no cure as of right now, but are there treatments that suppress the pain that you go through or is it painful or is it more so like a numbing, a tingling? Like, well, how does it feel? Yeah. So it depends a lot on individual people's experiences. CMT is a neuropathy or does involve neuropathy, which means that it often comes along with, or it often includes neuropathic pain. So neuropathic pain though can be experienced in different ways. It can be the numbness, tingling. I think most people that I've talked to with CMT experience like a burning sensation. Mm. Um, I experience that in my feet, like when I've done a lot of walking or if it's really hot outside and I, um, and not resting enough, the burning sensation is relatively common. Um, so a lot of people experience pain in that form, but then there's also pain of like recovering from surgeries or um, injuries. People with CMT are more prone to especially lower limb injuries because the muscles are atrophied and weaker. Um, and my alignment in my own legs is also kind of off because of stuff with CMT. So I've had a number of kneecap dislocations and um, a couple of knee surgeries, and those have also been sources of pain. Mm -hmm. um, I've also snapped a couple of tendons randomly, wow. and yeah, because the muscles are really tight, so it's easy to easy to snap those. And then a chronic wound on the bottom of my foot which actually we were talking about diabetes earlier in our conversation before the podcast. And um, it's something that people with CMT share with people with diabetes is we have to do foot checks really frequently because of the numbness in our feet. Um, sometimes we don't notice there's like an injury down there until, mm. you know, a few days after or a few hours later, because the 
sensory nerves aren't as um, active or sensitive. Mm. So I, when I was in my first year of grad school, I developed a um, blister on the bottom of my foot to be like my family and I took a trip to Chicago or something and we were walking around downtown and I didn't realize that I had a blister there. It was just a tiny one, but long story short, it like got infected and created an ulcer and mm-hmm. all these years later, that was in like 2015, I still have to get it debrided probably like once a month now by a podiatrist, um, wow. which is all could have been fixed if I had been like checking my feet and kind of attending to those more. So I learned that lesson. I learned that lesson. I checked my feet. Um, wow, yeah. Yeah. So things like that kind of are also sources of pain. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So like, is it still like an open wound or? Um, it depends on how it gets debrided. I don't know how much you want to hear about foot care. It's kind <laughs> of <is> debrided. It's <laughs> like, okay. That's a good question. So, um, when I developed the, this is for anyone who doesn't like to hear about foot stuff or like surgical <laughs> medical stuff, like fast work for a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So when I got the ulcer on my foot, it started as a blister, got infected, and then like the wound moved up into the tissue um, of my foot. So a little deeper. So I was, I couldn't walk on it at all for like three or four months. And another thing with CMT is that because of the poor circulation, it takes a longer time for things to heal in the Mm -hmm. lower extremities. So it took a while to heal got antibiotics all of that and um but the the wound because I use my feet to walk like it it will never fully heal or go away so I have to get it um debrided is like when the callus builds up on the bottom of your foot and it kind of like compacts the wound and like makes it hurt more um you get debreeding is when they kind of take a razor and slice it off um mm -hmm. so sometimes that does draw a little bit of blood and I'm like walking on the 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 bloody open wound for a couple of days but honestly that hurts less than when the callus builds up it it could be pretty pretty painful yeah that sounds like it how often do you have to go do that well once a month ish during the pandemic I started doing it myself yeah yeah (laughs) I know I know it's um it's an interesting skill to have and I've like I have you have to like get the razors from the store like the single blade and I know you have to be really careful with like the um cleaning process and the antiseptic and the antibiotic ointment and all of that and Oh, yeah. that was that's like the trickiest part because you really want to avoid avoid infection but I think I have it I think yeah. I have it down to a pretty good science now nice oh yeah. wow that's crazy I know we have to like become our own mini nurses sometimes exactly yeah exactly <laughs> I say mini because I feel like I do nothing that I actually I'm like is this even right I hope so <laughs> like- I had one time I had to like inject myself with a whole bunch of stuff. And I was like, I don't know if this is really where it's supposed to go. I'm just going to do it. Like, Good for you. Good for you. Did it go okay? Yeah, it went okay. I was, yeah, I got through it. But um, the needle was like huge. I was like, I don't know if I can look. Do I have to ask someone to do this? No, I can do it. (laughs) You know, the needle that 
the needle stuff is very hard. I've never had to do that to myself, but I can imagine that would be, you, you get a lot of strength from doing that. To yes. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely just like a mind build up. You have to just be like, mm-hmm. it's fine. I got this, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then like when you walk into a really intense meeting or like an interview, you're like, if I can inject myself with a needle, I can go into <laughs> this interview and I will be just fine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I can do anything. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's awesome. So in terms of your daily life, how does CMT sort of affect that? You said walking is obviously very difficult. Are there days in which it like varies? Like some days you're like, I can walk a mile. And then other days you're like, I can walk two steps. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's um, basically exactly right. I, it does vary a lot based on my energy levels, based on how I've been sleeping. Mm. It's interesting. I found that stress is one of the most intense impactors of the function of my, especially my hand muscles, um, but also my leg muscles. Like I get more cramps when I'm stressed, um, which could be because, you know, I have a lot to do. I'm drinking more coffee and less water, or it could because, you know, there are a lot of reasons that could cause it, but stress definitely does take a toll, um, Mm -hmm. a noticeable toll on my abilities. Um, yeah, a lot of it depends on energy. For me, I would say I have a decent amount of energy, especially at this point in grad school, I'm just kind of sitting and reading all day. So it doesn't require, require that much. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm able to, especially with my leg braces walk, pretty decent distances before I got my leg braces I would get tired from like walking a block Mm. um and it would be too much and my my feet would kind of they almost like give out um I don't know how else I could describe that so like the muscles that get the most tired are the ones in my lower legs um and especially the ones that lift up my toes to walk um which is called dorsiflexion so Mm before I had my braces, when I would go on walks, my dorsiflexion would get worse and worse, the more tired I became, which mm. would make me more prone to tripping. And that can get dangerous because again, um, the injuries were yeah. and prone to the injuries. So um, after I got my braces though, those hold up the bottom of my feet and keep my feet at a 90 degree angle. So the muscles doing the dorsiflexion don't have to do anything really. And after I got those, my energy return was incredibly like 180 um yeah it was it was crazy all of the things that I didn't know that were so hard to do um and once I had my braces I realized wow if this is what it's like to walk for people I mean no wonder they want to walk everywhere yeah seriously how um how did that decision-making process go for you like deciding to get a mobile aid at this what how old were you when you decided to get braces I was 27 okay yeah yeah so it was late 2019 yeah so I um in high school had been recommended for the leg braces that I have now my parents took me to like a specialty center in Detroit with um, Dr. Shai, who's a really well-known doctor for CMT patients. Now he's in Iowa and Dr. Shai and the whole team set me up with braces and 
um, because even at that point, they would have been really helpful. But as a high schooler, I was very resistant to anything that would make me stand out even more. Um, my gait, like the, the way that I was walking was already a little funky at that point. And I was very resistant to, to the idea of braces at a, as a high schooler. Um, even as a college student, they would have been so helpful for getting around campus. And especially when I studied abroad, which involved a lot of walking, mm. but to get around campus, I rode my bike. And then I had really great friends abroad who would link arms with me and um, help me on any rough terrain. So I got through those chapters without the braces. And then in the real game changer for me was actually going to Camp Footprint, which is a camp for people with CMT put on by the Shokumri Tooth Association. It's an incredible program. And my first summer I went and saw so many people with braces and it was an incredibly empowering experience. And I also realized just practically speaking, how helpful they were for people Mm. in supporting them to get around and like walk fast and stuff like that. So after I came back from camp, I said to myself, it's time, it's time to really look into this option. And the first time I got fitted for them and like took a few steps, I knew I, I was never going back. I was so excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, it felt like I was flying. Like it felt like a completely new me. It was very liberating, very, very liberating. So oh, cool. yeah, yeah, it was. And I think to realize that something that I had resisted and seen as shameful or limiting in a sense could be so empowering and liberating was a really awesome thing. I agree. I think that's really cool. And do you think it was too like being and seeing firsthand the community and like how like supportive they were in that journey for you? Was that helpful? Just like yeah. seeing people in real life, like, wow, we love these things. <laughs> like, Yes, absolutely. That was a huge factor. I was able to see people who owned their braces and loved their braces and were not ashamed and use them as tools to really enrich what they were able to do. And that was, yeah, that was a life changer. And I remember um, the director of the camp who is a living saint and I just one of the coolest people ever. He came up to me just casually one day and he was like, Hey, like, have you tried braces? Wearing his braces. He was wearing his braces. I was like, Oh no, like I kind of have been resisting them. And he's like, well, you should just check them out. You should check them out. Like really casually, but very supportive. And that was, yeah, that was also a turning point where I was like, all right, maybe I will. Like this really cool person is telling me to check them out and he embraces them. And I could be like that too. Yeah. And not like shoving it in your face. Like you need to have these, you know, like it's just a nice little nudge. Like, Hey, if you want, you know, look into this. Yeah. You're right. Actually, that was a huge factor. And I think perhaps many people who have experiences of being in the healthcare system a lot uh, with chronic illness or disability or anything like that can relate to very forceful instructions from Mm. healthcare providers or um, doctors or whatever saying you have to do this three times a week. You know, if you don't, X, Y, Z is going to happen. It's going to be really bad. I, I feel like that was kind of 
a very common theme in a lot of my interactions as a high schooler and even as a grade schooler, kind of very intense, scary instructions for things that I had to do and mm-hmm. that were demanding a lot from me. And I remember that being pretty overwhelming. And so, yeah, the approach of the camp director to just be very chill, like, just try it. It's up to you, I think was uh, an excellent way to to really help me feel like it was in my control and my decision. Mm. Oh, I love that. I'm glad that that was the, the case for you. Um, I was reading a little bit about your um, your post that you put about for home the homecoming. Can I read a little bit of it? Yeah, sure. So it goes, in the past, I saw my body as the home from which I had often wanted to run. But now I am beginning to reclaim the goodness of my body. I have begun the journey back to living and treating my body as my sacred home. I have become the homecoming. I freaking love that. It was just so powerful in the fact that like you were vulnerable and admitting that like you saw your body as something different than your home. And then you're like, no, this is my home. Like I'm going to take full advantage of living here and like loving it. And like, what made you realize that one, you're not living in your home? And then two, like, how did you then be like, how do I live in my home? You know, like, how did that go for you? Wow. Thank you for sharing that quote. It's funny. I have not read that in so long. And that was the first time I've heard it read back to me. And that was really special to hear. And like, yeah, I'm feeling a, that was um, kind of emotional. Thank you for, oh, yeah. for highlighting that. Um, yeah. So I think honestly, the thing that really helped me start this journey of what I would call the homecoming is my spirituality. Um, and probably my relationships with other people with CMT or relationships with other people in the disability community who I saw embracing the fullness of who they were, that was very powerful. And so that was a catalyst, but yeah, my spirituality, it was also very powerful, um, in helping me reflect on my relationship with my body and then help it, empowering me to have a different relationship with my body. So mm. I, yeah, growing up and again, I'm sure many people with, um, chronic illness experiences could relate to this. The main narrative that I was receiving around my embodied experience was it's wrong. Something's wrong. Um, we need to fix you. You need to fix yourself. Um, and like, so those were messages from other people, but then most of my experiences were ones or in my body or that I associated with my body were ones of pain, literal pain and emotional pain. So surgeries, injuries, social exclusion, you know, I could, I was the last picked in gym class, all everything that went along with having a disability as a kid. Mm -hmm. So between the messages I was hearing from doctors and the messages that I was hearing from, um, you know, classmates or the experiences that I was having myself in my body, it all kind of pushed me away from appreciating my body as it is. Mm. And I started to realize that I viewed my body that way when I took a class on um, spirituality and sexuality actually 
which would require a whole nother podcast topic to <laughs> to unpack what that meant and included. Um, but basically, the idea was that your body is good, and there are so many gifts that we can receive from our body and our senses, and um, attending to those can be like attending to your own sacredness. So that was kind of a turning point where I started to reflect on how I had viewed my body as kind of a, uh, an only bad thing or something that kind of brought pain and isolation. And I started to intentionally try to recognize more the good things that my body had brought me or the positive experiences that I had been given through my body. And that was kind of the inspiration for starting the Instagram, kind of sharing more about my journey and the complexity of living in a body that has experienced both pain and joy simultaneously. Um, and both honestly, because of my disability, like disability has not only been a source of pain for me, it's also been a source of joy and empowerment and community and really cool learning and everything in between. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that it's just like a whole different you, you know, and even though you've grown up with the CMT, I think that because you maybe wanted to just not deal with it, you know, that was also a source of, you know, this is just something that's happening to me, but I'm not, you know, in control, which that alone, just not being in control of anything, that's enough to want you, like make you not want to associate yourself with the thing. Because you're like, I can't, I don't know what to do with this. Like, mm -hmm. this is just happening. So like, I'll let it happen. But taking a little bit of that control back in like just loving yourself like that's even you know a big step in just like realizing like I can love myself and like have this happen to me but also understand that like things are going to just happen and like the way I react to them is like how I can give myself that love back or something you know I love that framing of control I don't know if I've ever thought about it in those terms but yeah that's exactly right I that's so powerful that yeah, a lot of my experience with disability has been feeling out of control and out of, or not having any control over my body or how I view my body. And part of the homecoming journey has been taking back control over how I tell my story, how I view myself and what I choose to focus on when I think about my embodied journey and how I frame my embodied journey. I like yes. that. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I love that too. What exactly are you going to grad school for? So I am getting my PhD in systematic theology. Whoa, that's mm -hmm. so cool. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting. And my focus is on embodiment and experiences of limitation, which would include disability, and experiences of grace or sacredness in the body or through embodied experiences cool oh my gosh that's awesome and how do you are, how many years do you have left or oh boy so <laughs> I I'm just in my first year of okay. the doctoral program so I still have four more years after this oh man 
yeah, it's I'm in it for the long run. But I will say that I love school and growing up with CMT, throwing myself into my schoolwork was my coping mechanism, my most effective coping mechanism. I feel that um, like school and reading and writing and processing everything I was going through through those mechanisms really saved me and allowed me to find joy and thriving in an area where maybe I wasn't feeling it in, in, you know, the physical aspects of my life. So I'm happy to be in this program. I feel really lucky to be able to be doing it. And so far it's just, it's been a joy. Oh, that's great. And what do you plan to do once you get done with it? Like what are your, your next steps that you are looking forward to? It's a great question. I think my, my dream of all dreams would be to be a professor. And I actually taught high school for three years before I started my doctoral program. And I loved it. I loved it so much. So to be able to do that um, in a university setting would be the ultimate dream, but it's very competitive and COVID is changing a lot of the ways that universities are structuring themselves and Hmm. theology. There's, there's theology is, believe it or not, not a very um, popular field. So they're, are so there aren't very many jobs there are a lot of people who want to do it but um not very many jobs so I'm open to whatever happens I before I was applying or while I was applying I kind of had a moment with myself where I thought you know even if it doesn't lead to a career in academia would this still be worth it and my answer was yes because I love the learning process and the opportunity to study Um, so right now I'm just trying to enjoy the process for what it is and we'll see how it unfolds after. Yeah, exactly. And I think that just the deep dive that you're doing into theology and like time and limitations, I think that that in itself is such a, a value to yourself that even like you said, if you get out of it and universities are no longer even a thing, like who knows what the heck is going to happen, but who knows, but like, you're so creative in the fact that like, you have this skill and you have this knowledge and I don't feel like you're going to just let that go to nothing because there's no universities. You know, there's so many ways in which we're progressing and like as a society, so many things are online, you know, there's options for that. So yeah, don't even worry. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And yeah. actually I was thinking that um, it's, it might require some creativity, like a creative um, way of, constructing a career but this is another thing that I feel like disability has prepared me for well I feel this is just a random hypothesis I have no support but I feel that people with disabilities or chronic illness or experiences of embodied limitation are really creative because we have to navigate especially navigating spaces that are not made for us and that do not cater to us spaces or systems Um, you have to figure out like how to move through those literally or figuratively creatively when they don't cater to you and look for like ways around certain things. I feel like I, I'm embracing creative paths because that's kind of what living in a, in a different type of body has, um, has forced me. I don't want to use that word, but has forced me to, um, to do in many circumstances. Yeah. And I was reading a little bit too about your experience, even teaching or going to school 
and having it not be accessible. Mm-hmm. So interestingly enough, the, the ADA accommodations that are required for public buildings do not transfer to all buildings. So churches don't have to follow the ADA rules. Um, some like universities that have really old buildings, they don't have to follow the ADA rules. Um, so there are some interesting loopholes there. In my grad program, the um, hilarious. So the, the library was two floors and the accessible door where you could push the button and the door would open was on the bottom floor and you had to take steps <laughs> to get into that door oh so gosh. it just yeah clearly not designed by anyone who was really thinking about the experience of people with disabilities but right so I the first two years of that program it, it was fine to go into the front door because I was not on crutches and I wasn't using um, a wheelchair or anything but then I what was it? I like popped one of my tendons my very last semester there. And I was on crutches and like a walking boot for a few weeks. And I had my backpack on and the door was super, super heavy. So it's not like you just swing it open really quick and put the crutch, like anyone who has been on crutches can probably tell you this skill. Like you swing it open really fast, you put the crutch there and then you can kind of make your way in. But this door was not opening quickly and it was very heavy. Right. Anyway, so I wrote, yeah, so I wrote a bunch of letters and one of my professors actually, I told her about it and she helped me advocate uh, with the big people on campus for, for this cause. And they, and they did end up putting in an accessible door a few months later, but not without drama. There was all this stuff about, oh, it's going to cost so much. Oh, it's very expensive. The door is too old. I heard it all. Eventually they got it taken care of though. So wow. every time so they, I go to that, they told you that to your face. Oh, it's very expensive. Blah blah blah. Oh yeah, the front desk. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is so rude. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was. I. It's sad because um, I think a lot of people genuinely they don't notice the real barrier that it presents to people who actually have uh, mobility needs that are different from their own. Hmm. Yeah. So, and it makes you feel like a freaking, like they are, by even just saying the store is expensive, it's making you feel like an inconvenience. And yeah, exactly. Burden, exactly. Exactly. Which is not the case. Like you guys, you are the burden. Like you having, you guys having not an accessible door is a burden to me. Like, yes, you should have yes. figured this out before, you know? <laughs> and what's crazy is like, it wasn't just me. I had seen other people on crutches or in wheelchairs using that library and that door and it it still wasn't like there was never anything done about it until I basically wouldn't stop harassing them. Well good for <laughs> you. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I'm glad that you did that. Thank you, Dana. And every time I go to that library now, I still go there sometimes. I do enjoy that library. I use that door I use the accessible button just to kind of remind myself of yeah. its presence there. Honestly, and like you're successful doing that. Yeah. Yeah, and what it took to get there. So I also saw that you love um had a post from Kate Bowler or a quote from Kate Bowler. I love her. She is my favorite. She is so cool. She nails everything. Yes. Like to a T. Just talking about, you know, chronic pain and how people 
live with a chronic pain, but don't want to acknowledge this chronic mm-hmm. pain that we're all living in, in like whatever variation of it. But since it's always there, like the addressing of it is something that people shy away from so often. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder, like, is that how you felt when you were living in this body and the space and then like having to communicate that to other people? Like, how did that feel like talking about this thing that will never cease to exist within your body? Like, how did you then broach it to other people? And like, do you feel like you have to soften it a little bit when you tell people like, how does that go for you? First of all, I love Kate as well. She is incredible. She's also like my theological idol because she's a professor at Duke Divinity School. And I'm like, wow, that's hashtag goals. Um, (laughs) So I love her. She's so cool. I think her work is incredibly important. Regarding the chronic pain stuff. Yeah, I feel like that her observations resonate really well, really strongly with my experience that growing up I thought that if I didn't talk about it and if I just pushed it out of my head it would help me cope with it and it would just kind of go away a little bit like just kind of push it away just goodbye um put it in a box lock the box and hope that it never comes out and that's just not the reality obviously and I think in my work um doing theology and spirituality and reading the work of people like Dr. Bowler I realized that doing the work of acknowledging and integrating experiences of pain into my self-concept, into my everyday life was actually incredibly liberating and powerful when it came to my sense of self. And it actually helped me cope much better with pain and like be able to talk about it and be able to perhaps most importantly, connect with other people who are sharing those experiences And that has been one of the most transformative factors of my experience of disability has been connecting with other people who share, you know, that form of embodiment. And I've found a lot of healing and hope and joy in um, meeting people like you and other people with CMT who have those shared experiences of pain. Yeah. So I all hail. (laughs) Seriously. I have laughed. I have cried. I have done all the above <laughs> listening yeah. to her podcast. Oh my gosh. She, I have like a trifecta of Kate Buller, Brene Brown, and Glennon Doyle. Like yes. all three of them are like the Holy Trinity for me. Seriously? And if I can just, <laughs> if I could just channel their energy in my everyday life, like I am doing it. Yes. Oh, great. (laughs) We're on the same page with that. If Mm -hmm. anyone, I will link everything. Please listen because it's so good. I just like love it. It just feels like such, it feels like I'm speaking with her and like whoever her guest is. I'm like, yes, like these are the topics that like I roll around in my head constantly and you guys are talking about it. That's so cool. (laughs) Yes. I love them. They're awesome. That's great. So in your time of having CMT and developing, um, living with leg braces and just developing your sense of self, do you find that you can still be positive in this space? Hmm. That's such a good question. Um, uh, Also a great follow-up to a discussion of Kate Bowler because I'm like, what would Kate say? What would Brene say? Yeah, yeah, I think that being positive it's very complex because it can easily slip into toxic positivity 
which is just kind of bulldozes all of the real hard experiences and puts a little bow on them and says, it's all good. Everything will be okay. And I think I probably at points in my life have embraced that mindset, just again, as a coping mechanism, trying to just make everything kind of disappear and go away. Mm. And as we all know, it does not work like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, Mm -hmm. so for me, positivity, I think, is the embrace of the whole story, the darkness and the light and the low points and the high points, and kind of tuning my eye intentionally to see the suffering, acknowledge the suffering, but also the joy and the grace and the tiny, tiny sacred moments that come out of lives of all kind, including my my life with a disability. And when I, you were saying, when you were talking about um, being positive, I was thinking about the word hope and the concept of hope and how I've been able to um, embrace hope in my journey with a degenerative um, disease. And hope is a very complex, just like like authentic, um, maybe positivity that's not toxic, but like real genuine positivity. Um, hope is a complex topic. So for me, that means being real about what I'm seeing in the darkness and also making sure that I'm constantly noticing the little sparkly lights that are scattered throughout each day um, and attuning to those and doing everything that I can to enrich those moments and to um, notice them when they happen and to like prime my life to accept those tiny little happy moments and grounding myself in something bigger, which again comes um, back to my spirituality, remembering that pain is not the last word. Yeah, so there's light even in the darkness. I think that's what it means. <laughs> you get the gist. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I agree. It is such a complex question, and that's why I like to bring it up because you know it's so hard to be positive in these times. And I think what you said about living in this world of toxic positivity, and like I too lived in that moment for a good portion of the beginning of my diagnosis. Like everything's going to be okay. This has happened for a reason. And it was only until like a couple roadblocks later that I was like, this seems not right. <laughs> like, this seems this seems like there's no end in sight. I don't know what the positive message is. I'm not getting it. Like it must be me, but it's not. It's It's just like this narrative that everything's fine, you know, it's going to get, you're going to get through it. And then when you don't, you're like, something's wrong with yeah. me, but it's, it's just what life brings you sometimes. That's right. And it's funny. I, um, when I was teaching high schoolers, one of the most controversial conversations we would have is about this idea that everything happens for a reason. For some reason, there's a false idea that this comes from Christianity. This is not a Christian idea that everything happens for a reason, but it often comes up in Christian circles. Um, and I heard it a lot growing up, you know, everything happens for a reason. You're so strong. You're an inspiration to us all just hang in there. And I don't think everything happens for a reason. Like there are so many things in life that the reason 
even if it's happening for a reason, that reason is not ever good enough to justify some of the suffering and evil in our world. Um, mm -hmm. So I would always, my students would always push, push back on that. They would always want to stand by their belief that everything happens. But I think as, you know, as we grow older and see a lot of different types of experiences, the logic doesn't check out. But what I will say that I do believe, not that everything happens for a reason, but that life is such that even in the darkest of darknesses, grace or little moments of light can still be there. And in still being there amidst the darkest darknesses are stronger in, in a tiny, in, the, in that sense, that they're still there. The darkness cannot drown them out. So that's kind of what that, yeah, that what your, um, your points reminding me of, Dana. I love that the strongest lights shine through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is there any sort of foundations or people that you support that you would like to share? So the nonprofit that's been the most helpful for me has been the Sharkarmy Tooth Association, um, the CMTA. They are the ones who put on Camp Footprint. They're the ones who have, um, you know, sponsored all of the community events and they're how I've met so many people with CMT. Um, they're incredibly supportive, like dynamic, amazing people who are so dedicated, not only to finding um, money for research and treatments, but also to building up the community. And to me, those are equally as important. Oh, absolutely. And like your experience there and like you sharing that was so like just seeing people that are like with you in your journey that like is just so nice to see, you know, like someone that like you can connect with that also is going through the same things. I think that that's so powerful and I'm glad that that was helpful for you. And thanks for sharing that seriously. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for jumping on this call. I really had so much fun talking and connecting and I hope that, you know, everything goes swimmingly with your PhD and I can't <laughs> wait for you to be Dr. Maddie. What's your last yeah, name? Yeah, Jarrett. Jarrett? Yeah, Dr. Jarrett. Dr. Jarrett. <laughs> Dr. J. It's just yeah. Dr. J. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Dana, for having me on. This was a joy to talk to you. And also just to connect with someone with some shared experiences feels really um, special, almost sacred. Um, and if people want to follow me after listening to this podcast, my Instagram is at the homecoming, the underscore homecoming underscore. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And that is our episode. Such a great call. And I loved connecting with her about her theology and just learning more about her disability and the similarities from a chronic illness standpoint to a disability standpoint and where the psychology uh, and the thoughts that we have link up. I loved that. And I love talking to her. She's so bright and fun. And I just really connected with her. So I, I thank you, Maddie, for jumping on the call. As always, if you want to follow Maddie on Instagram, I'll have those links below. And keep in touch with Still Positive. If you follow us on Instagram, give us a shout out, give us a comment, let us know what you think. And also follow us on YouTube or social media. We are everywhere. <laughs> We can always be with you still positively. Thank you so much for tuning in and stay tuned for another episode coming at you as soon as possible. Please stay safe.